Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I went hog hunting with a congressman um, because he was ranked by National Journal, where I worked at the time, as the most conservative member of the House. Ben Terrace is a feature writer at The Washington Post, where he's carved out a unique role, reporting on what he calls the weirdo beat. And it was one of these stories where, like, at 7.30 in the morning, I shoot a hog. You know, Jewish guy from Massachusetts, never been hunting. I shoot a hog, but the gun recoils, and the scope hits me in the forehead, and I'm bleeding, and I go to the emergency room. I'm getting, you know, my head super glued shut. While Ben's colleagues focus on what's happening on the main stage, he keeps an eye on the freak show that's happening just out of sight. And I'm like, this is great. This is why I want to be a political journalist. This week, Ben published his first much-anticipated book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. The Big Break has a novel argument, that if you want to understand how American politics works in the post-Donald Trump era, then you really, really have to understand Ben's field of expertise. Weirdos. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. The Big Break chronicles the rise and fall of a cast of influential Washington weirdos, Republicans and Democrats, navigating the altered landscape of Trump's disruptive presidency, including an heiress to the Hunt oil fortune who put her family money to work electing left-wing progressives and named her dog after Malcolm X. A George W. Bush Republican who, like many in the GOP, joined the Trump movement opportunistically, or perhaps out of necessity, only to be swallowed by full MAGA fervor a few years later. There's also a lobbyist for some of the world's most oppressive regimes, who was literally a farmer in 2016, and a young Democratic pollster whose involvement in the burgeoning political betting scene cost him almost everything. I've known Ben a long time and have thoroughly enjoyed watching him develop into one of the best political profile writers of his generation. So I was very excited to read this book and to have him on today's show. The Biden era is here. It's a little bit safer to do this kind of book, but Trump himself has changed Washington. And so I, I guess your, your starting point with this is what? That like Washington has been changed so much that even though you've got a, a, a quote unquote normal politician in, in the White House, um, the, uh, Washington itself has fundamentally changed through the Trump era. So that um, taking a look at how that's changed through this cast of characters is, yeah. is going to be revealing. Like, what was, the th- what was the starting premise? The way I saw it, basically, is like Washington felt like a broken place to me, right? Broken politics, broken relationships, broken confidences, broken predictive models. Everything just felt broken. And I wanted to find a bunch of people who were like trying to put something together, right? Either, either yeah. put it together for themselves or for their bank account or for the country or for their, you know, ideological beliefs. It's just people trying to make this new normal work. It's not going to be normal. Uh, maybe it's a new abnormal, but they're, they're trying to, to make it work. And I felt like if I could do that and find a diverse enough cast of characters who do enough different things from enough different angles, um, it would sort of, the book would sort of be a profile of Washington. What, what did you learn about Washington that you didn't know before in the, in the course of this reporting, you've been reporting on Washington for a long time now. You're, you're a veteran at this point. What, what did you learn that you really didn't understand uh, previously? There's this idea of Washington, and even I have this idea to a degree, having covered it for a while, that like somewhere out there, there are, you know, back rooms or uh, smoke-filled rooms or secret meetings happening where people like have it figured out, you know? Um, and 
I think in this book, I get into some of those rooms or some of the ante rooms anyway. And it's just, nobody knows what's going on. And, <laughs> and, and, and I guess I sort of had that, you know, like that's sort of the idea of Veep or the idea of, of this town or the idea of, you know, p- plenty of, of coverage of Washington. But I, I, I always kind of thought that like, there was somebody who had it figured out, and I just don't think anyone does right now. It doesn't mean that they, they won't figure it out. It doesn't mean there aren't smart people here. There are brilliant people here. But nobody has quite figured out what the hell is happening. Um, and that and that was, you know, surprising to me. You know, one person I talked to early in the book and only, and only briefly kind of tipped me off to this was Jen Psaki, who was at that point, um, you know, working at the White House. And she was telling me, like, we, I don't know if there's anybody who has a plan for if Joe Biden decides not to run for president. She's like, I have no reason to believe that he won't, and I hope he does, and blah, 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 all the things you say. But, like, are there secret meetings happening out there somewhere for a plan in case he doesn't? Like, there probably should be. And I was like, wouldn't you know about this? Shouldn't you? <laughs> I loved like, that scene, like, yeah. Like, who, if you, who knows about this? And I just think nobody really has a great secret plan. I mean, people have plenty of good plans for themselves and their business and, and, and sometimes for their ideological, you know, um, projects, but like a big overarching plan for how to do it here. It's just a, it's a tough time. I mean, maybe that's why it attracts so many, I don't want to say con artists, but so many, um, uh, creative entrepreneurs, maybe, uh, t- to this town, who sort of, uh, who, who sort of suddenly realize that you know nobody's actually in charge, and there are all sorts of weird opportunities here. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, it, it turns out it's easier to be successful for yourself here than it is for your country, and so you could work here and you could toil away on legislation that you think will make the world a safer or better place, or. Uh, try to figure out a way to make it easier for people to vote or whatever. And you can hit your head against the wall over and over and over again. And after 10 years, realize I haven't made any progress. And then you could spend one year trying to get rich and be rich. And it's like, oh, (laughs) maybe I'll just do this. How did you go about finding this cast of characters? What was that process like? And how long did it take you to um, put them all together. I, I have a, a, my list here of all your characters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, at least. Maybe, maybe there are more than that. But I counted like at least eleven main, main people. Is that, what you, uh, is that the number you use? Yeah, I, I, I guess I've never actually counted it, but that sounds about right. I mean, I think there's like five or six people who are really, really main characters who continue to to show up, and then yeah, another five or, or six that that are recurring. Um, How and did it was you really get, that's a lot. That's a it's lot. A lot. I mean, it that's was a really, lot for a book like this. It was really hard. How did you do honestly. it? Um, <laughs> it was really it was, hard. It was, it was so hard. Um, you know, I, it was really important to me that this book was not just low-hanging fruit, right? Not just yeah. uh, people that, A, everyone had already heard of, um, yeah. or B, people who are all in media or all uh, communications people, you know, who, who deal with the media all the time. Like, of course, there's going to be some folks like that in a book like this. It's part of the industry town. Uh, it was really important to find people that, A, an audience didn't know, um, and B, like I could really spend time with and get to know and, and see the tension and the drama in their lives and see mattered, right? I couldn't just be around someone because they felt interesting. They needed to be somehow representative of what's going on or somehow connected to important stories or part, you know, central, central to important stories themselves. And it just took a long time, honestly. I, it was The book process was probably two and a half years. And the first year was just, I didn't, I, I hardly put pen to paper. I uh, hardly conducted actual interviews. I was just like on the prowl. I was meeting as many people as I could. I was getting to know them. I was figuring out where they fit in. And then uh, I was kind of charting their, their, their progress in, in Washington as they tried to put their things together. And I got to tell you, like a lot of people didn't make it into the book that I spent a lot of time with. I was going to ask um, you, like, who, who ended up on the cutting room floor? Well, weirdly, one of these guys I just, <laughs> I just wrote about, and then you guys broke a big, sto- <laughs> a big story about afterwards, was this guy, um, Morgan Murphy, Tommy Tuberville, the senator's 
the, the former football coach, senator from Alabama, uh, his national security advisor, Morgan Murphy, was this guy I spent time with for the book, you know, hours and hours and hours because he was a weird dude who had a big job in Washington. He was a a top aide on matters of the military for a U.S. senator who, if you looked him up, his Wikipedia said Morgan Murphy, parentheses, food critic. Because <laughs> he, got, he got his start working for Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair. And then he went to Forbes magazine and then Southern Living. And he wrote books about eating his way through the South. And he went on QVC and he hawked his books. And then he had a bacon line that he tried to make work. And this guy was in the ear of a U.S. senator who now has been blocking the Pentagon uh, from nominating and promoting uh, flag officers and generals. Like, this guy is all of a sudden in the, in the middle of a big national story. But the problem for the book was <laughs> he wasn't in the middle of any of those things. I was just spending time with this guy, completely fascinated, raconteur storyteller type, but he just didn't have, like, a full narrative arc, right? And a, and a book doesn't work unless people are actually, you know, going through something. He was just kind of there. Um, yeah. Fortunately, fortunately, I was able to use a lot of that material in the paper. And what happened was after that story was published, you guys broke like three days later that he resigned um, because uh, it didn't sound like Coach, which is what people call Tommy Tuberville in his office, didn't sound like Coach was too pleased. <laughs> so how many, how many of those characters did you actually spend time with that you decided to, to cut? He was the one that I spent the most time with, but yeah. there was probably... Oh, six people. Wow. Um, you were, you spent, you, you did a, t a ton of work. And some of these people were like, like actual names, right? Like I, I spent time with uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Um, huh. I spent a bunch of time with Congressman Ruben Gallego. And I think each of them have one quote in the whole book. And, and, you know, there, it was a very stressful thing for me. And, and I really, it's a leap of faith in a way in this book, because it's hard to sell a book if nobody knows the names of the people in it ahead of time, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I need to really convince people, buy this book because it is interesting, because it tells you how Washington works, because there's drama and intrigue, and it will explain why politics is broken, but you're not going to feel like you're reading a textbook. That's a lot of, that's, you know, that's an elevator pitch that you got to go to the top of, you know, the Empire State Building to, to have time for. If you have a book about Donald Trump, you can say, don't you want to see the crazy... Can I say shit? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. You, know, the you, you can. You can. Uh, you check out the crazy stuff I found about this guy. Look what he flushed down the toilet and look what, you know, look what he wanted to nuke next. And that's not to take away from those books, which are remarkable, you know, feats of journalism and important first drafts of history. Um, but it's just not my skill set. And it wasn't the book I wanted to write. I didn't want to have another book about Trump or a book about people that had already been written about that you already sort of knew how you were supposed to feel about. I wanted to yeah. introduce new people. And you know, the person that I thought about a lot in this was Michael Lewis, right? I mean, you read liars poker or you read, you know, losers. And what you're, what you're doing is you're reading about people who aren't already out there. And he is such a good journalist that he's convincing you and he's right that they matter. And here's why, you know, in losers, one yeah. of the theses was, uh, Every good idea that the eventual front runner and presidential candidate has probably started with one of these losers. And, you know, you can see how American politics works from the ground up, I think, just as well, if not better than from, you know, top down. And part of what, what drove his choices in, in, uh, in, in 96 for losers was access. You know, Bob Dole and Bill Clinton wouldn't give him any access. So he, he went and hung out with Maury Taylor. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And look, I, 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 that, that's part of my story too, right? Like these are people who I could spend time with. Uh, if Joe Biden had said, hey, you want to like ride, sh <laughs> ride shotgun with me uh, for an entire year and, you know, give me your, your every thought, if, if even even if Chris Licht had said that, you know what I mean, <laughs> to me instead of Tim Alberta, like, you know, yeah, of course the access matters. Um, yeah. But there are easier people to get access from than the ones that I managed to get access to in this book. I, 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 I truly believe that. As I was reading this, I was thinking um, uh that is the danger of, of a book like this. It's a lot of characters. Um, and what is it that ties them 
altogether. So when, when you were making cuts and finding these different uh, uh, individuals and, and essentially, you know, casting, what was it that you were looking for um, to uh, make this a sort of singular tapestry rather, um, you know, than a bunch of random, uh, uh, to really butcher this metaphor, uh, you know, patchwork quilt? Yeah. Well, one of the things was like they were all um, kind of made in certain ways by, by not all, but a lot of them were made in certain ways by Trump, right? Yeah. Um, the, that they're Leah responding Hunt, to that era and that change in Washington in some way or taking exactly, advantage of yeah, it. Exactly, yeah. They, they were taking advantage of it. They were trying to figure out their world in it. it, it they, they were made by it in a way. He created Leah Hunt them. Hendricks. Yeah, in, in a way, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that like these people couldn't have figured out other ways to be successful in Washington because they probably could have. But in, in a lot of their cases, it was like Leah Hunt Hendricks could raise, you know, infinity dollars basically because Donald Trump was in the white house and yeah. she had tapped, tapped into to, to this kind of anti-Trump movement. So she was sort of brought into the scene by Trump, Sean McElwee, same idea um, uh, on the left, but also kind of was like a Trumpy kind of guy. He would yeah. be inappropriate. Uh, he was doing scandalous things, but kind of doing them out in the open, like betting against his own clients. And, and, because Trump did stuff out in the open and got away with it, it seemed like a thing you could do in, in Washington. Um, you know, there was Robert Strick, the, the lobbyist, who made more money than 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 anyone um, because he was able to take advantage of the Trump chaos. And Matt Schlapp, who completely changed his identity in Washington to become a Trump loyalist. These were people that this moment in time uh, changed them and put them in a position to become real players in Washington. And I wanted to know what happens to these people on the cusp of that after Trump was gone. Got it. Now that's, that's really nicely, nicely said. Who were you, who are the characters that, uh, you spent a lot of time with, 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 with these people. You obviously had personal feelings, uh, uh, about them. Who are the ones that you, uh, looked forward to spending more time with, whether it was like, you know, just because the material was was so good and you felt like the story arc was really working out or, you know, just because you you personally liked them? Yeah, for the most part, uh, n- none of them were people that I was like desperate to hang out with. You know, it just, it, like this job, I think I have I think I have one of the best jobs like in the world, honestly, at least in one of the best jobs that I, I could personally do. I mean, I'd love to be a baseball player or whatever, but that's not going to happen. Um, and, and I still like don't like it most days because like it's hard. It's hard to be there. Like I'm not their therapist. I'm not their friend. I'm not, um, you know, an antagonist. But like, we are not like, you know, we're not there to hang out. I'm there to report on people and I want them to be comfortable because I want, um, you know, to get the true version of themselves. But I can't like just be a buddy to anybody because then I can't write about them honestly. And also then they're going to feel taken advantage of by the end of it. So none of it felt particularly like fun. But one person that I was always like most kind of just interested in like what's going to happen today was this yeah. guy, Jamarcus Purley, who, um, young black staffer for Dianne Feinstein from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, brilliant guy, uh, went to Harvard and went to Stanford, went to Oxford, and had kind of a low-level job um, working for Dianne Feinstein uh, until one day he got fired, um, and I can get into that, but he um, decided to have a kind of a protest video of sorts. He took a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms uh, broke into her office, uh, you know, using his badge that still worked, sat at her desk, her actual desk, smoked a joint at her desk, filmed a video of himself dancing around, um, and was hoping that this video would go viral and he could discuss the things that he wanted to talk about. The, the, he wanted to be kind of a whistleblower of sorts in, in Feinstein's office, partially because he wanted to talk about what he thought was her mental facilities, uh, you know, her fa- faculties declining, uh, which we've, you know, been talking about a lot as a country lately and nobody really paid him that much mind and and using his story to tell a story about a part of Washington that I feel like never gets covered in books like these. Um, The, the staffers on the Hill staffers of color spending time with the guy behind the Instagram account, dear white staffers um, to kind of 
write about what it's like to struggle, to try to do good work, to try to make it while also having like the burden of these awful jobs on you. Spending time with Jamarcus was always interesting because, you know, a guy who does that kind of protest, you just know he's, he's interesting, right? Like, and he just, oh, yeah. he, he was one of my every, favorites in the book. Well, thank you. Everything he wanted to talk about was just like, I didn't know what was going to be next. And, yeah. um, that was, that was interesting to me, but it also, you know, not to get corny about it, like it felt important, right? Like it's, it's easy to write a Washington, well, no, no, no book writing is easy, honestly, but it would have been easier to write a Washington book just about the, the Washington characters that we all already sort of have archetypes for. And again, there are, are those people in the book. Um, yep. But to find people who are just not represented, one, one guy in this section is a, a journalist uh, named Pablo Manriquez, and he would describe uh, this class in, in Washington on the Hill, especially as the subaltern. The, yeah, I the, loved the that. Cafeteria. Tell everyone what subaltern means. You had to look it up. Yeah, I, I had to look it up. And, and, and that's what pa- Pablo told me. He was like, I like to call it the subaltern because then I you know, have to watch people look it up because they don't know. And I was like, yeah, really cool. Uh, I'm like secretly looking it up so I don't look like an idiot. Um, basically, it's just like, you know, it's, it's a class of people that are, are, that are not uh, close to power. They're, they're beyond the hierarchies of power. And, and on the Hill, that meant, you know, cafeteria workers and, and staffers and uh, people who drive around their bosses and do their laundry and work hard on legislation and get no credit, but take a lot of blame, get paid nothing. And writing about kind of the changes that are happening there with dear white staffers or unionization efforts or protest videos filmed by, by fired staff. Um, it just felt like a really rich uh, and important environment to, to try to cover. And, uh, you know, I, I was really happy to be able to get that into the book. I love the stuff about Pablo working at the restaurant on the Hill and like listening into conversations that Casey Hunt and Bob Costa are having uh, and sort of, you know, trying to figure out like, how does he become them? How does he become a journalist? And yeah, he was see, a cool, seeing them as these celebrities. He was a cool story. Now, oh, one other thing I wanted to say, I just, I don't know if you uh, agree with this, but one of my favorite, people always ask me, like, what's a great movie about journalism? Like, what should, what should I watch? And I always say uh, Almost Famous, which I think is one of mm. the best movies about the source um, reporter re- relationship and the relationship between the editor and, and, and the writer. Um, and, you know, there's that, there's that one scene where um, the Rolling Stone editor Lester Bangs tells the, the the reporter, you know, who's like a teenager out on the trail covering this band, you know, don't become friends with them, you know. He's like, you know, you made friends with them, <laughs> you know, friend, something like friendship is the booze that you feed them. Like you can't become friends with the people uh, you, you you cover, and it's it's uh, it's as true in political journalism as it is in you know in in, in music criticism. Um, yeah, and, and in some ways even more true and, and harder for a lot of folks, right? Because people live here and they work here and they see each other all the time and it becomes kind of a bubble and becomes clicky and you can, you can, you know, your kid might be in the same softball team or t-ball team, yeah. soccer team. And like, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to fully uh, remove yourself from the world in which you live in, uh, but it makes it harder to, to cover this place, uh, you know, accurately and, and, and in a hard nosed fashion. I mean, I feel like I, I'm lucky with my job because I'm not a beat reporter. I don't have to cover the same people every day. I can write a story about somebody if they don't like it and they don't want to talk to me ever again. Uh, that's fine. You know, I wrote about George and Kellyanne Conway and, uh, for the paper and Kellyanne Conway has not spoken to me since. Uh, and that would be a problem if at the time I was covering the white house as a beat reporter but for me, I just kind of could move on to the next person. It's, it's, a, it's a luxury in that way. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the farm bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land.
So Sean McElwee and Matt Schlapp, so you've been following them for what, a year plus? Uh, yeah, and that's right. The, uh, they suddenly, they blow up into these national stories. Are you watching this from uh, behind the scenes uh, with your deadline approaching, but knowing you're not going to be publishing for quite a long time, thinking this is great, you know, I've got the, I've got the, the ending to those two big stories in the book, or you're thinking, oh shit, you know, my, I'm, I'm losing the scoop here because this thing is going uh, national. Yeah, as a, as a naturally uh, panicky and anxious person, definitely my first thought was, oh shit, like, no question. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a newspaper reporter, right? And I'm used to like trying to get things out when I have them, you know, I, I, my stories take longer than, than most newspaper reporters, but they're still on a pretty quick schedule. You know, I finish reporting and then a few days later I'm trying to write. And then a few days later it comes out and it's like, Ooh, I got a scoop. Um, so for Sean McElwee, let's take that one first. I mean, the reason I spent time with him to begin with was he felt like an interesting rising star democratic person, not because I felt like I was about to watch him, uh, you know, implode, although I knew it was a possibility. Um, but I did not think it was a sure thing. Yeah. And what happened was I, I started watching him, uh, at poker nights that, that he invited me to. And a lot of the gambling he was doing was not on poker at all, but on, on, elections, <laughs> including races that he was working on. And, and he was so open about it and he uh, would brag about it to the table. Um, and I was sitting there thinking, I have like a scoop here, right? Like he's talking about this openly, but I know that nobody really knows about this. Like normal people do not know that political consultants are gambling on politics, like that, including their own work. Right. And it felt like, okay, a scoop is a weird word for it, but it felt like I was going to be able to explain a world to people that they didn't know existed. And they would read it in this book and say, holy shit, like that's what's going on in Washington. That's weird. And then when Sean uh, went through what he went through and to kind of be brief about it, basically by the end of the year, his gambling had become news. His connections to Sam Bankman Freed had become news. Uh, his staff had lost trust in him and he was asked to resign um, from the, the organization that he started data for progress. And when that happened, I was like, well, there goes like, you know, me explaining this world to people that, uh, they will never have known about. But then I thought about it a little bit longer. And, and A, most people are not paying attention to the machinations of insider Washington. Like you and I might right. know about it. Um, Playbook might cover it. The Washington Post might cover it. Uh, New York Magazine might have a piece about it. But your average person who buys and reads books, it will still be news to them. I had to remind myself about that. I had material that nobody else had by being around to see the the, the rise and the and the hovering and the crashing fall. And I, like you said, had a dramatic ending to a guy's story. This book is basically told over the course of a year. And the fact that at the end of the year, this guy has the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to him happen. Yeah, I mean, that made writing the end of his story uh, exciting and interesting and easy. Um, Matt Schlapp uh, had an interesting year, let's put it that way too. And it was... It was completely different, but it, it was really hard to deal with in a way. So the reason I wrote about, wanted to write about Matt. How, how he, so? So, so the it reason was, I wanted to write about him was similar to the reason I wanted to write about Sean. Sean felt like a guy who was representative of where the Democratic Party was in a lot of ways. He, Sean had been an abolish ICE Democratic Socialist AOC supporting lefty uh, publicly for a while and then had kind of tacked to the pragmatic center. Um, because that's where power and influence was in Biden's Washington. Uh, Matt had gone through a similar but opposite shift in a way of being an establishment um, George Bush type Republican who became a uh, Donald Trump loyalist. And I was like, if I could figure out him and what his life is like, how he made that change, why he made that change, how he spins that change to himself, to his friends, to you know, family, to, to whatever, that will help me understand the Republican Party. And so that's why I spent time with him. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, he, he has a, a big dramatic fallout with a person very close to him. And I write about their relationship in, in the book. And it feels like a real kind of heart of, of, um, of a heartless seeming 
Washington, right? Like things are yeah. dark on the Republican Party, and the, and here's a, a story that felt like, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to think Matt is a good guy in this book um, at the end of it, no matter what. But at least they can mm-hmm. kind of see what's what's going on. And what yeah. happened was, as I was finishing my reporting and finishing the story, news broke um, in the Daily Beast at first, uh, and then covered everywhere that Matt had been accused of groping a male staffer um, on the Herschel Walker campaign. And so that happened uh, in, you know, late October. Uh, I did not know about it at the time. It broke in December as I was finishing my book. I then have to, you know, re-report it all. I get in touch with the alleged victim. I, you know, put questions to Matt and his people. Uh, I kind of have to rewrite him through the book. Yeah, I have material that kind of started to make more sense uh, that I wanted to to get into the book. Um, and it had a similar feeling, which is like, on the one hand, um, you know, this is dramatic storytelling. On the other, the whole thing is just sad and uh, unfortunate. And, you know, you don't want to, to, to think about these actual people as just characters in a book. And so it was, a, it was kind of an emotional um, thing to try to work through it, to talk to this guy on the phone, the, the, the alleged victim and get his story. And his story ended up being really complicated too, like revealed that he had ties to possible white nationalists. Like nobody looks good in the story. Um, and having to kind of sort through all that quickly and, and make it at, make it make sense, uh, which I think I did, honestly, I think it all does fit in the book in a, in a, in a good way, but it was a lot, a lot of, of pressure and anxiety to, to deal with that. I bet. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right. It does, it, it, it does fit. I was personally fascinated by Schlapp because I've just sort of followed his career with interest for a couple of two decades. Plus I was actually a reporter at the Brooks brothers riot in, in 2000. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, I don't think I remembered Matt at the time, but you know, shortly thereafter, like the characters who were at the Brooks Brothers riot, many of them became important central figures in Republican politics, and yeah. you know, different different journeys. Not all of them became Trump people; some became anti-Trump people, but they all, you know, a lot of them went on to be important uh, operatives and activists. Well, and the, and, and the Brooks Brothers riot is so interesting too, because it's like you know, things are very different in the in the Trump era and yeah, the Trump yeah. era. But that's but also something like, that's you like know, Trumpy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it didn't come from nowhere. Trump didn't come from nowhere. Trump fits in in Washington in a lot of ways. He's a showman. He's ideologically malleable. Like he, there's a lot of things about him that make him kind of an archetype of Washington in a way. And, yeah. and, and these things have happened, right? Like the, the January 6th riot was in, you know, insurrection was obviously a million times worse and bigger and, and scarier than the Brooks Brothers riot. But it's like, you know, the Brooks Brothers riot had 20, you know, th- 20 however many years to, to grow um, to become that, right? Like it, it didn't just come from nowhere. I thought it was fascinating the scene where, you know, of course, uh, Ben Ginsburg, who became very, very anti Trump, and you, you document how he, you know, he, 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 uh, wrote a piece slamming the uh, efforts to overturn the election. And that scene where Schlapp tells you, well, I learned about Democrats stealing elections from Ginsburg on the plane to Florida when we were going to to fight Democrats during the 2000 recount. So, you know, screw him. He's the one that taught me this. I thought that that was really fascinating, sort of connecting those two eras. Yeah, when he said that to me, it, it was like, yes, of course. Like, I, It's important to not, not pretend that, that Trump is a you know Deus Ex Machina who came from nowhere? Like Ben, what's the reaction been? I know the book just came out, but you've had a number of excerpts. Um, you know, I, I assume a lot of the characters had had a good sense of of what um, th- their portrayals would would look like through fact checking and editing. What's the what's the reaction been so far from the uh, the the main characters? Yeah, you, you you have a a real professional um, understanding of the process because the fact checking thing and it did not it did not occur to me, uh, but that was a huge relief for me. A because you know I got fact checkers to make sure I didn't mess up anything in the book, and that is very helpful because you know it's a and long. You probably book had to hire them yourself. 
I did have to hire them myself. Yes, it's a little dirty little secret of book publishing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I've learned a lot of dirty secrets about book publishing. But we don't need to get into them. Because, Your next book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, but that really did kind of let some of the, the the steam out. I think. I mean, look, it's it's day three of the book being out in the world. The reaction, I'm sure, is going to change for these characters many times. It's hard yeah. to be written about. I do appreciate people who bring me into their world. I try to be fair to them. Uh, I think I give everyone a fair shake. Uh, but I also recognize that, like, not everybody's going to love the portrayal because, you know, everyone would write their own story differently if they could write their own story. Yeah. Um, I've heard from some people that they didn't love parts of it. I've heard from some people that some characters in the book are talking about how angry they are. I have not mm. had my phone blowing up a lot. Um, about this at the moment. Uh, although, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens. How, how, did, uh, how, did, how did Robert react? I have not heard from him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say that uh, the fact-checking process was helpful there, too. Like, you know, he knew the contours of what the story was going to look like. And just like. briefly for of, listeners, I'm sorry to, to mention him without explaining, but just briefly explain who Robert Strick is. So Robert Strick is um, a lobbyist who uh, made Donald Trump's Washington work for him probably better than um, any any other lobbyist, on, like on a personal level. He made a ton of money in Trump's Washington. In fact, he was the subject of a New York Times magazine cover story called How to Get Rich in Trump's Washington. Um, <laughs> and he is- Which a, probably made him even more, even wealthier. For sure, because that was done before he had even really gotten rich in Trump's Washington. It was like early <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump era. Oh, it was 2017, just, right? Yeah, it was. It was like very, very early in the Trump in the Trump presidency. And then he just made the whole presidency work for him. Uh, cowboy hat wearing, uh, ostrich boot leather wearing, guy lives on a farm called Alibi Farm, works for uh, kind of seedy individuals sometimes uh sometimes it's you know he tried to get a contract with the belarusian government right at the brink of the war with ukraine you know uh, i mean the, the the fact that uh one of the saudis competing f to be you know the, the 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 king gave him like four or five million dollars just <laughs> just to you know for, for doing nothing made me think i, I really am in the lo wrong line of work yeah, I mean, you got to give him strict credit for some things, right? Like he hustled, <laughs> like he figured out how to make it work. When Donald Trump won, everybody was like, "What are we supposed to do now?" We were all preparing for Hillary Clinton to well, be president. Just tell he, I, I love tell the story of like his first when he. I love the story so much, Ben. But t tell the story of how he basically got the idea to become, you know, a kind of uh, private. Uh, diplomat with uh, with 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 the, the the New Zealand story. I think that really helps uh, explain who he is. Yeah. So so Strick, you know, was a lobbyist for a long time in Washington, but never really made it work, and ends up moving out to Oregon eventually and owning a, a, a winery. Um, and while he's out there, he's still dabbling in politics and and takes on some you know mid level, low level volunteer work for the Donald Trump campaign. And when Trump wins, Strick flies himself to Washington. Uh, actually, he was even there for election night. But he, he goes to elect. He, he spends four days in Washington, basically partying because Trump won. That's his guy. He knows people in the Trump campaign, and he feels like he's going to find a way back into the game. And the game kind of finds its way to him in a way, and it's via a, a dog. I believe it's a, a a lab, a chocolate lab, maybe who that that comes up to him while he's partying uh, with a friend, celebrating with scotch and cigars at the Four Seasons in Georgetown. And a dog comes up and starts sniffing his crotch. And he's like, what the hell is going on here? And a woman comes and she's like, oh, sorry, sorry about my dog. And she has an accent and Strick is like, oh, are you from England? And she's like, fuck off. I'm not from England. I'm from New Zealand. And it turns <laughs> out she works for the New Zealand embassy and is upset because like everyone in Washington, she's having a hard time connecting with the new administration. She wants her boss and boss's boss and country to have a connection to the new president. And she's like, yeah, we can't get in touch with him. And Strick is like, oh yeah, I can do that. And she's like, who the hell are you? And he's like, you know, I'll make this work. And he didn't know if he could, but like he had the balls and he had the connections 
to try. And when he connects New Zealand to the president, which he's able to do because he gets the president's cell phone number, which is a crazy thing for any other presidency, but sort of makes sense in, in, in Trump land. Absolutely. Uh, he's off to the races and he gets a contract with New Zealand and then he gets a contract with all these other, um, you know, foreign uh, governments or f- people in, in foreign countries. And he becomes what he thinks of as sort of like a private state department. Like instead of going through the state department to get things done, pay this, pay, pay me millions of dollars and I can, you know, connect you to the right people. I, I love your portrayal of him. A few months ago, I ran into that guy at a very strange party, the, probably the most DC party that you could imagine. Um, it, it, it could have been the coda, you know, it could, it could have been the last chapter of your book. It was the 30th anniversary of Cafe Milano. I encountered him in this weird VIP area in this back room. I had never heard of him. And he started, you know, talking to me and telling me, you know, some of his, his weird backstory and saying, you know, ask so-and-so about me, you know, you know, this person. And I, and I just, you know, he gave me his card and I never thought about him again until I was reading your book. And I was like, thank God Ben Terrace spent a year with this guy because I really wanted to know everything about this weirdo. Um, I That's amazing. Strict I, I saw, for calling I saw you a weirdo, but I just, oh, yeah. you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to read that. And I think, uh, I think readers will, will love that uh, will will we'll love reading about him. But go ahead. I what, saw, what I saw his I, I saw his name in the Politico playbook spotted at that Cafe yeah. Milano thing because because I, I had a Google alert for him and I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, he's a guy who you know prides himself. You described him perfectly because <laughs> I didn't remember his name, but I was like, I'm almost certain this is the guy based on Ben's description. Yeah, he yeah. has described this, you know, everything he was, was saying. Was he wearing a cowboy hat? He yeah, he had the whole the whole getup, and then so I googled him to make sure. I was like, "Is this the same guy?" And you know, for whatever reason, the first pictures that come up when you Google him are not his cowboy uh, era; it's his suit era. So I wasn't sure, but then I found his business card, and sure enough, it was the the same guy. Amazing, yeah. So he's still and he's still hanging around. He's still out there, yeah. Still doing the doing the thing. Uh, how'd you get into this business? I thought I wanted to be a novelist. I went to Kenyon College in Ohio for a year, which has a great writing program. Uh, it turns out I was really bad at making stuff up. You know, I just like could not <laughs> like write fiction. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's not going to work out. But journalism is great because other people could be interesting. Other people could do interesting things. I didn't have to come up with the interesting stuff. I could just watch other people, write it down. It's like stolen valor in a way, you know, it's like people will like stories of mine and I'll be like, yeah, well, you know, the characters are interesting. I was just lucky enough to be around them. And, and the, the hard part then is negotiating and securing the access and getting close so that you're able to tell those stories with the kind of detail and richness um, which you certainly do do in, in this book, but that's a whole different set of skills than uh, imagining the characters and their motivations and 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 all and all the rest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I like have to have a social battery that that feels like it's always depleted, but I have to keep recharging it. <laughs> that's really. T- Tom Wolf once talked about how you know being a journalist was you know was just sort of belittling because you're constantly asking people for stuff and you're just constantly prostrating yourself in front of people and especially in political journalism, often prostrating yourself before people who are are kind of uh, um, kind of lame. Let's be honest, and that you might not respect very much. Oh but, yeah, for but, sure. I hate myself a lot of the time during the job. <laughs> 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 which part of it? Yeah, Doing th- that, part? The, the, the like, begging? you know, the just, yeah, just like, hey, I uh, just want to follow up. Like, I just want to follow up on this. I want to follow up on this. Like, you know, being a constant uh, annoyance to someone until they're finally like, okay, fine. Like, we'll, we'll let you hang out. Uh, it's just, <laughs> I just feel so awkward about it. But, you know, it is the job. And so tell us a little bit about your career. Uh, what's the, the pre-Washington uh, post period? I, I think I first met you years and years ago when you, you were at National Journal, and we would occasionally run into each other on the Hill. And, and, and It's here true. And I, remember the, I remember the first time we met, actually. You were at the, um, at the, uh, the press gallery, and you didn't know how to get to Eric Cantor's office, and I helped you find the way there. I still there, don't. Like, I still literally was, get I mean, lost it, going to the yeah. Hill. I, Honestly, 25 years, like a, and I still can't navigate it. 
it was the highlight of my <laughs> of my like young career as a journalist. I was like, I actually know something, and I can tell somebody how to get somewhere. It was like I felt like, <laughs> wow, I've made it. I I know I know how to take one left and one right and go up a, a thing of stairs. Like maybe I am a journalist. Um, <laughs> that is a true Washington skill, learning the hill. Yeah, and at some point, I just true. I just gave up, and I, I remember yeah. that. I remember meeting you there. Tell us about the idea for this book and how how it got off the ground. So originally, originally, the idea came to me from this really smart uh, publisher, um, Sean Desmond at, at 12 Books, who's, who's my editor. Um, and years ago, he pitched me like, hey, uh, could we get interest you in maybe writing something that's like a this town, but for now, this town obviously being, you know, Mark Leibovich's fantastic book from, I want to say, 2012, um, 2013, maybe just an amazing, you know, uh, anthropological look at, at what, what Washington was in kind of the Obama era. And I did not have any interest in doing that. Um, it's like, I can't compete oh, you with didn't. Mark's. Oh, no, you not at want, first. You, you didn't want the comparisons. Yeah. It's like Mark is so good at what he does and, um, things didn't feel different enough to, uh, fully, um, you know, write, a book that would that would be different enough that it lo- was looked at on its own, or mm-hmm. I didn't want to be like too funny about the Trump years because they didn't feel funny enough to me. It felt kind of too dark for a while. Um, yeah, and and so it was it was a hard it was a hard sell for me. But then when Biden won, uh, and people started kind of thinking, oh, things are going to go back to normal in Washington. I remember thinking like, okay, like things are not going to go back to normal in Washington. The normal is gone. Um, but whatever happens next will be really interesting. And as I was having that thought, I had just had my second kid, uh, Jack. Um, I was on paternity leave. My brain was mush, but these were kinds of the things I was thinking about. And like fortuitously, Sean Desmond called again and was like, hey, like any interest in doing, you know, a book about Washington? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I do. I think during the Trump era, culture of Washington reporting and and those kind of uh, what used you know what would be published in the style section and and what glossy magazines and sort of for lack of a better word fun political profiles um, there was a sense by a lot of editors that you know things were too serious for that kind of journalism and. Um, that, you know, it was really, you know, democracy dies in darkness, uh, period of, of serious reporting. And, um, a lot of that stuff got, got swept aside, even though the Trump era was, (laughs) was in, in some ways the, uh, you know, it was both, uh, extremely dark and extremely hilarious. Um, but that, that was part of your, 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 uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but it sounds like that was part of your thinking is like, oh, you know, it's, it's, you can't do a this town because uh, it's, you know, people don't think this is so funny. Yeah. I mean, yes, you're right. And there's another thing too, which is before Trump, I felt like I I'd carved out a niche in Washington by being the guy who wrote about weirdos, you know, like, yeah. oh, Ben's got a story coming out. It's going to be about a weirdo. And, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do that just because like they were fun, fun and funny and, and, you know, offbeat characters. I, I tried to find people that also could represent a bigger story. You know, I went hog yeah. hunting with a congressman um, because he was ranked by national journal where I worked at the time as the most conservative member of the house and the tea party had just come to power. And it was like, here's a wacky kind of story, but also I'm Who seeing was that? a, his name was Dennis Ross, not to be confused with the diplomat. Oh, okay. Yeah, very different uh, Dennis Ross. Yeah, I mean, and it was one of these stories where, like, at 7.30 in the morning, I shoot a hog, you know, Jewish guy from from Massachusetts, never been hunting, I shoot a hog, but the gun recoils, and the scope hits me in the forehead, and I'm bleeding, and I go to the oh, emergency Jesus. room, I'm getting, you know, my head super glued shut, and I'm like, this is great, you know, this is, this is, this is why I want to be a political journalist. Um, <laughs> But so part I've got of it my was lead, like, but yeah, it, it, and it is the lead, uh, my best lead ever. It was it's seven thirty <laughs> in the morning, and already the congressman and I are covered in blood. I mean, you want to read more of that, right? Um, the the thing about what happened in the Trump years was a the seriousness um, of it all, but but also I didn't have like an edge anymore in a way because now everybody was covering the weirdos because weirdos are no longer off stage they're no longer the sideshow they're on on center stage now like when trump came down the golden escalator 
um, to run for president, I was the only person from the Washington Post there. I had to lobby to be there. I had to like, you know, stay on a friend's couch um, because the Post didn't, you know, want to, to send anybody. <laughs> And I went. Because oh, I, li- it felt- I was listening to that in the book and thinking, "Oh, that's so funny." Because, uh, as you probably know, Olivia Nuzzi has a very similar story, right? And yeah, it's like suddenly the weird your beat, the weirdo beat, suddenly becomes like the central beat of American politics. Yeah, and and so in, on the one hand, I felt like I was in the best position of anyone around to cover it because, like, these are the kinds of people that I you know, gravitate towards in a way as, as, as yeah. characters. Uh, but on the other hand, I also felt like, well, like there goes my, <laughs> there, like there goes my leverage, there goes my beat because all of a sudden the entire Washington Post is like trained on it. And so now I used to work really hard to make a story kind of funny. And then yeah. a, you know, a great reporter at the Washington Post, but you know, a kind of a serious reporter at the Washington Post could just go to the White House, see Sean Spicer hiding between bushes. And that's funnier <laughs> than anything I could ever have written. I mean, it's sort of like what I was saying before about I couldn't be a novelist because I couldn't make stuff up. I just can see good material and then write it down. Now everybody is seeing good material. All you have to do is be there and and it's wild. And, you know, people who are better sourced than I could be writing these stories about Trump trying to nuke hurricanes or whatever else. And it's like, yeah, uh, you know, this would be hard to be a writer for Veep to try to compete with the, the chaos and the craziness of real life. And in some ways I was like, it's kind of exactly. hard to, to be to be the the weirdo beat guy, because that's just the world. Well said. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, It's a pleasure talking to you, and it's a pleasure reading you. And um, I hope the book sells a million copies. And (laughs) I can't wait to to read your next piece as well. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.